in the darkest worlds that ever were. The only thing that brings light are stories. Those stories are kept in one place. The tiny bookcase. Hello, explorers of the Sacred Library. You're listening to the Tiny Bookcase. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And it's that time once again, the time for stories. Stories are, in fact, our favourite. Our guest today is described by the scrolls as both a writer and an academic. He has turned his hand to short fiction, poetry and even radio dramas. Among other awards, he's received Bridport Prize and the Edge Hill Prize, both for short fiction. A real pro. We may be in trouble here. Best behaviour and better form, Ben. It is my pleasure to welcome Graham Mort. Hi there. Hi. So, um, you're UK-based, Graham, I believe. I am, yeah. Um, and uh, how's, how's the pandemic been for you? Any, any troubles? Has it been a good time for writing or has it been a difficult process? Yeah, I guess I'm one of those people that secretly uh, enjoyed it in a way. Not the pandemic, of course, but, but the lockdown. So we live in a quite a small rural uh, village in North Yorkshire. And I have to say, for us, we've been very fortunate. It hasn't introduced many changes into you know, the way that we, you know, we kind of live day to day. Yeah. Um, but I'm very conscious of that. I mean, a few years ago, I had a writing residency in Scunthorpe and I lived in a block of flats. And I've often thought about the people in that space and how they've, you know, had to cope with what's been, been happening over the past few months. So, yeah, it's been, it's been kind of OK. It's been a bit tedious, um, but it's kind of kind to writers in a way. Mm. Um, there's been that space, I guess. Yeah, we're hearing it a lot. It's interesting to hear about the the writing residency, though. Did you did you get on well there? Yeah, that was way back. It was my first. Um, I I just started to freelance, and uh, it was my first kind of freelance appointment, really, in a group of schools and colleges uh, in Scunthorpe. But it was it was quite a hairy environment. Um, all the so I lived in this block of flats, and all the streets around it were named after poets. Um, nice. And there was a pub there called The Beacon, and you went in there, but you never made eye contact with any of <laughs> Scottish steel workers um, who were in there. They were understandably bad-tempered, I think, because the industry was kind of on its last legs at the at, at the time. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was very different from the rural environment, shall we say? Was that was that a sort of town and gown split then in Scunthorpe? From like, if you worked at the university. No, well, that was before I was an academic, actually. So mm. I was a freelance writer for about 20 years. Right. I entered academia late in life, like a lot of writers, actually. Um, so I'd been doing a lot of work in schools and a lot of projects with other artists. And the national curriculum came and it all got much more constricted. You know, creative work was less important. Um, coursework was less important. And I gradually decided um, that I wanted a kind of big change. Um, and I went into academia, but it, but it, that's not an isolated story. You know, there are lots of writers that that kind of um, entered academia as creative writing was growing as a academic subject. So mm. um, it would seem like an interesting opportunity. Definitely, and we we spoke actually before, just uh, whilst we were off mic, about the possibility that um, it's very likely that you d ran a workshop at my secondary school that I went to in Cumbria in uh, Coniston. 
which is a an odd little link there, isn't it? Um, yeah, I used to travel. I used to uh, travel the country on a large motorcycle, and uh, really, I worked at just at one time this big circle, you know, on the, from the east coast right across to um, the west coast, uh, and uh, was kind of constantly traveling really and, and mainly working in, in schools but doing other stuff like editing as well and uh, Alvin courses um, I did lots of those. Exciting stuff that's really cool well I think without any further ado it's probably time for some stories. Nico you're first on the block and oh, crumbs. yeah exactly and this week it's uh, the prompt chosen by a guest is Red Shoes. Acting out of spite is problematic I know my therapist tells me that I look for potential problems where there are none and work away at them until they become reality. <sighs> my relationship with my mom was problematic, though, and anybody who knew me when I was young cannot say anything otherwise. See, that was why I wore my red heels to her funeral. She would have hated those shoes. She would have told me I looked like a prostitute. That the high heel was something Western whores wore to try and tower over men. She would not give a shit that it made me feel pretty. She wouldn't really give a shit about how anything made me feel. She was a fucking bitch. Sorry, yeah, no. We don't speak ill of the dead, I know that. She would have had something to say about respecting her elders. It's hard to respect somebody who tried to beat the life out of you four days a week, though. You know, everybody talks about abusive relationships. How hard they are to break out of, but nobody's talking about how much worse that is when you don't have any money or clothes of your own. Because, you know, you're a fucking kid. I tried to run away. Only once, though. The thrashing she gave me after that taught me not to run again. Not till I was 15, anyway. She did not have a hope of catching me then. You know what's really fucked up? The kids at school used to call me all kinds of shit. Like, I'm not going to repeat it, but believe me, when I was a kid, it did not matter what part of Asia your family descended from. You were just some kind of yellow menace. The Japanese in the 40s, right? Then Vietnam, China, it's Korea now. Why does America always need some part of Asia to hate? We were from Hong Kong, anyway. I've never been there. But yeah, the kids. Uh, they call me all this vile stuff, and the only other person I knew who could be facing the same racism was waiting at home to beat the shit out of me. I get a different kind of racism now, you know? Those guys who love Asian women. It's kind of fascinating, right? Video games and anime, they turn racism into a fetish, which is fucking wild. And these dudes always look the same, which is fucking hilarious. You know the guys, they, they smell like old milk, and they have these stupid hats. And they all talk about what a nice guy they are, and how you should be grateful. Honestly, you reject these pricks, and it's always the same shit. I'm a nice guy, you just want to be hurt, yada yada. Yeah, well maybe I do want to be hurt, but on my fucking terms, okay? I mean, we have safe words for a reason, honey. Mine is no, and I just fucking used it. You know, not one of those guys has the nuts to do what I want him to anyway. They lack the conviction it takes to really fuck the shit out of someone, you know? Ugh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, my mom. 
I'd come home crying and tell her about them calling me the G word and stuff. And she would beat me and tell me I was embarrassing her with my weakness. She made me kneel on rice, you know? I mean, that sounds like a joke, but it isn't. That shit really digs in your knees and then it expands when the blood gets to it. Oh, it's the fucking worst. Although I heard some people do it with big pieces of rock salt. God, that's got to suck even worse, right? So yeah, my therapist tells me about this too. He says I derail and then I end up spinning around the plug hole, which I think is kind of a great metaphor. It's really evocative, you know, without being dirty, which is rare. So anyway, yeah, I left when I was 15 and honestly, I did not give that bitch a second thought for years. Okay, maybe that's not exactly true. I'd see Mother's Day shit in the store and I'd think of her, but I'm not going to go crawling back to her, right? I mean, yeah, it got lonely. I had no one at all. I'd meet guys and we might fuck or whatever, but no one really seemed to get what I want. And women, oh, they hate me. I have this theory. It's because I know what I want and I hunt it down. I'm an apex predator. We all are. And I just act on it. The shoes. I'm meant to be telling you about the shoes. <laughs> Daibochi. Sorry. Uh, that means sorry. So I'm like nine or whatever, and my mom takes me to get shoes because the old pair I had were busted out. You could see my toes and everything. So anyway, we go to the Goodwill, and I see these cute little red, what would you even call them, like pumps? I don't know, but they were shiny, and they had a little heel, like maybe a half inch, the, the wide kind, not the stiletto kind, you know? Well, I love them straight away, and they're like 50 cents. But she just launches into this tirade about red shoes and heels and the whore of the West is turning me into. Yeah, I'm fucking nine. And straight back on the little rice cushion for the night with the scuffed gray pieces of shit that she bought. You know, the fucked up part is that I believed all of it when I was young. I was so scared that I was turning into a whore or that something about me was being ruined that I never... You know, I never asked her why we came to America. And I guess that's something I actually do regret. Like she was a person too, in her own way. And maybe she wasn't all bad, just fucking flawed, you know? So I found out she was dead, basically by accident. I needed something dry cleaned and I just follow Google Maps. Dry cleaner in me, you know? So I follow the thing, and what do you know? I'm, I'm right fucking there. I haven't seen this door in like 20 years, but I remember every line of the thing. Same gross turquoise, except now it's gone pale. And I knew I had to leave right away. Obviously, because she might get me. Ignoring the fact I grew up to be like five inches taller than she was. Little midget bitch. No, shit, sorry. It's not okay, you know, because she's dead and, and stuff. So I look in, and it's not her. It's some guy. So I go in, and he's all, Ni hao, and I just, I just ask him, where is Mrs. Chen? She always went by Mrs., even though I, I never even heard my dad's name or saw a picture or anything. He gets this sad look and tells me she had cancer. 
all those years of breathing in dry cleaning vapors, I guess. Funeral in a few days. Did I know her? I don't make a fuss, you know? In the last couple decades, she probably hasn't even told anyone I exist. Or the ones that knew me think I died already. Which I guess to her I did, kinda. So I went, you know? Just stood the back and watched as all these schmucks spoke about how kind she was and how she was a pillar of the community. I mean, yeah, I cried a little, but that's funerals, right? They're fucking sad. Whenever I started welling up, I just looked down, you know, at my red shoes with a big heel and remembered what a monster she was. I said Ang Shi with the rest, you know, and I thought about saying goodbye to her. But I did that a long while ago anyway, so I left it. My therapist says I need to get better at leaving things behind. And I tell her I'm working on it. And my red shoes tell me that's a lie. And I'm okay with that. Whew. That was that was pretty powerful, Nick. The uh, really intense voice you went for there. Um, it was it was very full on. And once I was in, there was no coming out. Really, yeah, really full on. Um, and uh, very sort of almost almost stream of consciousness. You know, her getting a big weight off her chest and stuff. It was. It was quite nice. It was like being on, it, like listening in, in on um, like a therapy session or something, wasn't it, for this woman? I really like the way it's, it kind of spiraled and spiraled and and revealed more. Uh, the old men that smelt of milk that made me slightly uneasy. <laughs> the, uh, the... And, and you know, um, <laughs> being dead and stuff. Uh, it's kind of interesting how you hear that voice, but kind of are looking beyond it the whole time for what's really being said. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually, because at least as a from like a UK perspective, we, we mostly hear that in uh, entertainment, that, that, that yeah. accent. So there's an idea that it's it's a facade, possibly. Um, and the way that, as you were saying, that it sort of spiraled and that, you know, it felt very like natural that the tangents that she was going on as more was coming out about how she felt and what happened and where she was and how she was moving forwards. Yeah, it felt very real, very, you know, very revealing. For someone that we'd only just met and we were interested to know more about them i i think as a writer that that risk of um of changing gender and cultural um you know kind of identity i mean um, i think that's just a really interesting move and to be able to sustain that through the story um there's a lot going on i think when when those kind of moves are made what what drove you to do this kind of like exploration of her because uh, it was almost an exploration of her like sexuality in a way, wasn't it really, or a meditation on it? I uh, it's twofold, definitely. When I, well, you know, when we got the prompt, when Graham picked, I the first thing I thought of was, I'm going to wear these red heels to my mum's funeral. I know she'd hate it, and mm. that that just immediately came to me. And I thought, well, who who is telling that story? And as you know, Ben, I've recently really got into tiger belly which is the korean comedian bobby lee's podcast shout out to the slut king oh yeah and um just listening to some of the social differences that they talk about in that podcast really sparked a story in me 
And that did, is that where the the Neil on Rice came from? Yeah, it's, I heard about that in in that podcast. Pretty pretty horrendous way of torturing your child, isn't it? That yeah, I I actually googled it because I thought, is this like a a small scale thing? But it's just a really common punishment in Asia. I the description that you gave of the like the blood bloating the rice up was was quite that was powerful. I thought. Oh yeah, I think that was that was a yeah really really nice entry, very interesting, and not the first time you've actually you know Graham you were talking about uh, going for another gender, going for another cultural identity. That's not the first time uh, Nico has actually done that on this podcast, and it it's always interesting to see where you go for, go with it and where you where you're coming from with it, um, and it always seems to work. So very nicely done, man. I'm glad it did. It it, it felt did. like a like a big risk, but. I, I I really wanted to tell that story, so I'm glad that I managed to. There's absolutely no way I could pull that off, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I could not maintain that accent for too long, uh, if, if at all. So, well, yeah, kudos, kudos. But uh, Graham, you've uh, you've chosen to go in the middle, so I'm excited to see what you've done with the prompt. Okay, thank you. The tide was out, leaving a slope of mud the lip of a crater. It was another nothing day. Sea and sky merged, so there was no horizon. The concrete blocks of the power station were hidden in mist that formed seed pearls on her jacket. She threw the stick and the dog ran for it, a Welsh springer that was getting too old for all this. The dog came back with the stick covered in saliva and dropped it at her feet. She threw it again and the dog ran after it, then again, until it became distracted, pawing at the sand, worrying at something in a pool of water that gleamed with sky. Pauline took out a paper hanky to wipe her glasses and it fell apart in her fingers. Taff! The dog shook its head and went back to work. Taffy! She put a warning note in her voice, the way she'd let the kids at school know she meant business and the dog was back, carrying a red shoe in its mouth, which it laid at her feet. Then it sat down watching her, its tongue hanging crooked, the colour of tinned salmon. It was Bill's dog, really, not something she'd ever wanted. Pauline clipped the lead on him and crouched down. It was a woman's shoe, patent leather with a moderate heel. There was a bow at the front. It was a court shoe, nothing fancy, so the bow seemed incongruous, like someone's face caught between expressions. They were the sort of shoes that might have seemed like a good idea at the time. The sort that got worn once for a wedding, that went back into a box at the bottom of the wardrobe. Or they'd been dangled overboard on a warmer day than this, as a woman sipped chilled wine and watched her lover trim the sails. Or they'd been kicked free as the sea closed over her head, hair streaming upwards, bubbles of air bursting from salt water. They said that those who died for love always changed their minds and fought to surface. But those who died in debt went straight to the bottom. Though love and debt were hard to distinguish. She picked up the shoe for some reason. 
lets them slack out of the lead, so the dog followed behind. They took the path past Sambo's grave, a faithful Negro who, attending his master from the West Indies, died on his arrival at Sunderland. There was a little shrine of painted pebbles, then that poem written by a retired schoolmaster. They said he died heartsick when his master didn't return. As if there weren't a thousand other things to die from. Fever, scurvy, the pox, captivity. Pauline tapped the shoe on the flat stone and a few grains of sand fell into the inscription. Pauline got the dog into the back of the car where it sat in its cage on an old towel. Then she drove out over the causeway. There were ruined fishing boats abandoned in the fields, rotting down into the silt. Lancaster Castle was a dark clot above the city, and she could make out the white dome of the Ashton Memorial beside the Butterfly House. A folly built to commemorate love. One thing the Victorians understood was death, brevity, the stealth of the undercurrent. The dog lurched and whimpered as she braked. The tidal gullies were running with water and coils of mud. They looked like the tracks of sea serpents, those mythical beasts that spirited local girls away to another life. The shoe was on the seat beside her. She'd been to Wigan Casino once, before Bill, with a boy from Gulgate who was about to go to university. Theo. He was two years older than her. He had Bob Dylan curls, and he was so cool that she trembled when she was near him. They danced all night before driving home in his dad's dolomite. She danced in her red baseball boots, watching the boys in loose trousers and crop tops spin into the vortex of themselves, before they went back to who they had to be. She was letting go, moving to the pulse of Detroit, the automobile gleam of America, the sheen of the future. Theo must have taken something. His pupils were wide and dark. He tried to kiss her when he dropped her off, but it was two in the morning and her mum would be waiting. She'd pulled away. His breath smelled of cigarettes. The next time she passed him, he was leaving a cafe in town, an undergraduate in a duffel coat covered in CND badges. Then Bill, who already had a good job at Hesham, keeping the reactor going, those isotopes, whatever they were called, endlessly dividing. An electrical engineer who couldn't dance and didn't want to, but who could build a radio transmitter from scratch. A man who knew his own mind. Then her own job, teaching primary kids, until she was teaching the kids of kids. She pulled into the driveway and let the dog out. It cocked its leg against the laurel. The shoes had left a dark stain on the seat. When she unlocked the door, the house met her with a wave of heat. That smell they'd got used to. She shut the dog in the kitchen, where it would sleep and slobber and fart in its basket, then went through into the house. Bill was in the conservatory, in his wheelchair. Tartan slippers, the oxygen cylinder on hand, his cup of tea gone cold and milky. She turned off the TV 
and put the red shoe on the little table next to his blistered packs of pills. He walked then, confused by the quiet, pushing at the plastic tube under his nose. There was dried soap in his stubble. He looked at the shoe as if he didn't understand. Then he looked at Pauline as if he might. He half raised his hand and seemed to want to speak, struggling for breath, but then let it fall. He tried to smile for her, as if there was still time. A red shoe. One of a pair. That was soaked in sadness, Graham. I loved it. Just seeping in melancholy. It really was. Like, at the the luxurious descriptions that you were using but that weren't overblown in any way they were just spot on they you know they were used sparingly and always for impact and always for character was yeah something to aspire to for sure that was a really powerful story i really thoroughly enjoyed it i got hard stuck on his tongue the color of tin salmon tin salmon yeah that's stuck in my head the dog really really strong image the uh the first one that um, sort of peaked, it really sort of drew me in was the the water that gleamed with sky. I thought that was a really beautiful turn of phrase for something theoretically quite mundane, but it is actually quite beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it, excellent. Um, so very much feels like you've spent a lot of time in this in this area. Have, have you? Um, yeah, it's it's, um, it's 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 an actual setting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's and it's a very remarkable place. Um, it's a a kind of row of houses, really. That's out on a peninsula. Uh, the, the power station was built, you know, in the, after the war. Um, but it's got these extraordinary mud channels that just fill up, uh, and the and the causeway gets covered with water. You can only get there on certain times of the day, so it's Sunderland Point. Um, and you look back to a, to the city, and that's a very odd feeling as well. Uh, the perspective is altered. Um, so it was that idea of sort, of sort of looking back in all sorts of ways, really. Oh, that's that's nice. Yeah, I can see that now. Yeah. Uh, I, su- I suppose um, it's it's odder how actual look came about. So uh, many years ago, I was the writer in residence at the Oldborough Poetry Festival, and I lived on the... In a funny little timber house on the right on the the beach there, and every day the beach was different. One day it would it would put coal down or cuttlefish or a particular type of seaweed, um, and one day I found a woman's red shoe there. And oh, really? I've, I've done nothing about it. It's, it's twenty five years ago, but that image never left me, and I knew that one day it would make its way into a story. So when you offered me the prompts, um, it was like a hotline back to that moment, really, of picking that shoe up, and of course, wondering about. The other shoe and uh, how it got there, all that stuff. That's, That's amazing. Cool. That's really, really cool. Oh wow! I, yeah, I, I, I was really transported by your story. So thank you. Um, you, you mentioned uh, a folly that was built for love. So this would have been the sort of like uh, the fake things that the Victorians put up. Is that correct? I've, I've only, I think I've only ever seen one of them before. Um, yeah, whether it's officially classified as a folly or whether Pauline's state of mind um, made it seem like a, a, a kind of foolishness. But it's a huge memorial. Um, so the guy that built it, Lord Ashton, he, it was built to commemorate his second wife who died. And it's this huge white dome. 
um, which is very conspicuous. Um, and there's, there's it, the whole thing has recently been restored. There's a butterfly house now that's full of butterflies. So at one level, it, you know, there's, there's that sense of vanity in a way. Um, uh, and on the other hand, there's that sense of how of that extraordinary act, that like Taj Mahal, of commemoration. Yeah, um, not quite sure where Pauline is on that on that line of um, kind of appreciation, given her own circumstances. Yeah, she's yeah, as you say, like a lot of it was to do with um, ways in which you can look back, and it every everything that she was saying, it felt like it could be interpreted in different ways, and she felt like a very complex, real, breathing. Uh, person, um, I thought it was. I thought it was excellent. Um, the uh, the dried soap in the stubble of um, of her husband was uh, a very powerful image for me because I, I remember this with my when my when, just before my granddad died. Like he, he very, it was very clear that he was losing the ability to care for himself entirely because you would get stuff like that where it was just he just missed something, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for for an otherwise very well turned out man, which it sounds like her husband was. Um, so yeah, it, it was. It felt the whole thing felt very real and very raw, uh, and, and it really, really spoke to me. So yeah, thanks again. It's interesting that it sparked sadness from a woman's perspective in both of us, and yet so differently. Yes, I, su I suppose the, the redness of the shoe. I mean, it's an incredibly powerful kind of symbol, isn't it? And and one does think of its sexualized quality. I think, and that came out. Yeah. Also so far um so so i guess that there's something about the the idea of a red shoe that sort of would lead you to a female character um but but that remains to be seen yeah uh, i mean I, I won't i won't give away too much about um the story that i'm about to read which i've which i've written but um just after i do that i will I, we'll talk more about that because that actually wasn't the first place my mind went um how about you give away all of it right now in the order that it is written down by reading it to us? Well, well, that actually wasn't the story that I wrote in the end, so we'll, we'll oh, talk about that oh, afterwards. Well. Anyway. Oh, this one with his two stories. Good <laughs> it's important to play with ideas, I think. Beep, beep, bingle, beep. We're just barging in a moment to tell you about something cool. 200,000 book titles are published every year in the UK. Just 17% of these are lucky enough to get a decent marketing budget and make it to the bestsellers list. Among the other 83% are many amazing books and authors that remain undiscovered. Shockingly, it's estimated that 70 million of these books are destroyed each year in the UK alone. A box of stories wants to change that. By scanning thousands of titles and using real reader recommendations, their algorithm saves these brilliant books from being lost forever by curating a box of four surprise books. You could even pick the genre of the box, like historical fiction or crime. Discovering new work has never been easier or more exciting, and a box of stories has saved more than 100,000 books already. To receive £4 off of your first box, Use the code TINY when you check out at www.aboxofstories.com. That's TINY, all in lowercase, at www.aboxofstories.com. Now let's get back to our stories. Beep, bangle, beep, beep. <laughs> Red Shoes. 
Mangal had never enjoyed his work, but he had also never wept after using his tools before. As the eldest of five, he had learned the trade and pursued it at the behest of his father's fists. He would have liked to read history in a British university, and sometimes he would find a free moment to enter the European bookstore by the East India Company buildings. The Pathan bookseller always wrinkled his nose at Mangal. The man would demand that Mangal remove his only pair of shoes at the door as the smells of the butcher's trade clung to them. Mangal did not like to go barefoot amongst those Europeans that browsed, but he did so anyway. He would note the shining leather of a redcoat's boots as the man sought reading material for his next campaign. Mangal would side-eye the embroidered slippers the chaperoned ladies who sashayed through the wide aisles wore and feel sorry for his prescribed lot in life. What a grand thing, he thought, it would be to stride in long boots and receive the bowing obsequious attentions of the Pathan bookseller. He had found the only remedy for that feeling was to be overcharged for whatever book stole his fancy that day. He would then return, clutching his prize, to the place he still thought of as his father's home, which was buried in the bustle of Kanpur's indigenous districts. Outside the hours of work, Mangal would drink tea and read those books attentively. Every page soaked into him like water into parched and sun-blistered ground. He would sometimes write letters communicating what had interested him in each book to his four brothers. Blocked from continuing their father's trade by the order of their births, his brothers had all become sepoys. They served as regimental soldiers stationed in Bengal, Lucknow and Delhi, and rarely wrote back except to be polite when too many letters had been sent in one direction. That had been before the rebellion. It had begun, some said, with the introduction of a new pattern rifle. Those tight-barrelled Enfields, designed for Europeans, were far more accurate than the muskets which had carried the East India Company to dominance. To achieve this accuracy, the shot was flung with tremendous force by the powder at its back, along the spiralling inner rifling and out of the mouth of the rifle. Yet Mangal had heard the stories concerning how a sepoy would load the new rifle. Each shot, by necessity, came within a pre-greased cartridge. The sepoy would bite the top from it, pour the powder, invert the greased cartridge so the shot's tip pointed the correct way, and ram it home with a rod before tapping the butt of the rifle by their foot to ensure the shot was seated well. The trouble came with the grease. It was known that the East India had achieved the necessary lubrication with commonplace tallow and lard. At this time, it was thought that only one in 20 soldiers in the India regiments were European. The rest were Muslim, or, like Mangal's brothers, Hindu. As such, the cow and pig fat used was seen as yet another way for the East India Company to spread their Christianity by abusing the faith of those that served them. In the sweltering heat of the summer, Mangal had seen the sepoys of Kampur heave at his reality and shift the world. He did not know if his brothers lived, whether they remained loyal to the British, or if they fought in the revolt. The sepoys within Kampur, however, besieged the unprepared Europeans, and the British soldiers had been cut down on the banks of the Ganges as they tried to flee. Their women and children had been rounded up and confined to the Bibigar. In the weeks that had followed, Mangal had felt the tense silence of the city. With no customers choosing to dare the streets and patronise his shop, Mangal had tried to read, but found his concentration scattered. He had thought to write to his brothers, but the ability to send letters had died with the British on the riverbank. Instead, he had visited the Pathan's bookshop. The man himself had been hanged by enraged sepoys. They had claimed he had converted to Christ worship before they strung him up. His shop had been plundered, but fortunately not burned. Mangal had instinctively begun to take his butcher's shoes off when he entered. 
but realising how the world had changed for him, he chose to lead them on and strode through the mess of the lynching as though he were a haughty overlord. It was there that the runner boy found him with orders. It was a written command from the Husayani Begum, the preeminent concubine of Nana Sahib, to attend the Bebigar with the tools of his trade. Such an order seemed somehow not out of place in the odd vibrations of the world, and Mangal had obeyed it. As he arrived at the compound, he could see that several of the rebel sepoys who had been tasked with guarding the remaining Europeans were sitting pale-faced by pools of their own vomit in the courtyard. The stench of gunpowder was rich in the air, held there by the heat. Other butchers called from the city had arrived with him, and they had all appeared hardened beyond humanity by the gravity of events. Mangal felt a similar, impassive stillness well up within himself as he began to see why he had been summoned. Discarded muskets still lay by the shattered shutters of the Bibigar, where the sepoys had thrown them. Faintly, Mangal could hear the gibbering moans of pain from within the building. The bodyguards of the beggar made it clear what he must do, their threats driven by their own fear of the approaching British relief force. Mangal was ushered through the main door of the Bibigar with the other city butchers, and there he saw the shattered bodies of those women and children who had died in the initial volley before the sepoys had botched the job and lost their stomach for slaughter. The wounded had crawled deeper within the Bibigar, and Mangal saw his fellow butchers begin their work. That work left clumps of torn-out hair matted against the bare walls, dismembered limbs professionally hacked and cast aside, as though the meat of them was rotten. All the while, the blood which flowed from the Europeans created an ankle-deep flood. Mangal mechanically waded through the carnage, and found his own tools being set to use by hands he seemed to have lost control of. The splattering horror of it blanked his mind and muted his heart. Once the task was done, they tossed the bodies in the nearby well until no more would fit. They gave the spare corpses to the river and watched them float away on a bloody current. Mangal did not sleep for that night or the next. He did not even try. He watched without emotion as many of the sepoys who had seized the city under the command of the Sahib and his courtesan left in anticipation of reprisals. Many others left as well, choosing to lose their livelihoods than witness what was to come next. Mangal waited. The British arrived in full force the third day after Mangal had performed his task. He had heard their wailing upon the discovery of the well and the state of the Bibigar. The soldiers, barely kept in check by their officers, plundered strong drink from the town and mourned the loss of their countrymen, women and children. Mangal knew it would not be long before darkness fell and their passions would ignite the powder that every soldier carries in his heart and on his hip. Some hours later, Mangal found himself retracing the old route to the Pathan's bookshop. He thought, perhaps, that there might be some release waiting for him in those plundered books. Two soldiers, their red jackets askew from their drinking, stumbled into him. Their bleary eyes took him in, and one of them shoved him. He allowed himself to fall, not having the strength to stop it. The ground was hard under him, and the heat of the day still radiated from it. Mangal looked up to see them staring at his shoes. Those shoes, which the Pathan had so despised, were caked and dyed in the blood of women and children at the Bibigar. Mangal sat up and took in the state of those shoes for a moment, before squinting up at the soldiers. The men fumbled for their rifles. He watched them bite the cartridges and spit the spent twists of grease paper upon the ground. He considered that someone in his position might try to run. They loaded and tamped the shots whilst their hands shook. No word was said as, with a practiced motion, both men raised their rifles and fired. The shots sank into Mangal, 
and knocked his back flat against the ground. His spine then arched involuntarily, causing him to thrust his chin up, away from the pain. Mangal stared up into the night sky, and as he did so, heard answering shots ringing out from around the city. The heavy pain in his chest made it difficult to breathe, and the breaths that did emerge did so as sobs. Mangal wept as the Kanpur began to burn. So we all went with quite cheery stories then. <laughs> it's always the way of it. It's, it's interesting how pr primal that interpretation of Red was. Um, that sense of blood and danger and hell um, and violence all compacted into the, the shoes. Um, uh, extraordinary, I thought. Uh, yeah, I um, I had I had a lot of a lot of fun thinking about that that prompt. It doesn't sound like it from the way that I wrote that. It's all quite sad and like someone who's got given them given themselves PTSD basically. But um, uh, my initial thought was to go Caesar, go Julius Caesar. Um, okay. The, the possibly apocryphal thing about his uh, him wearing red shoes and that meaning that he was giving signs of kingship or whatever. I think we all sort of hear about that at secondary schools, mate. But I wasn't sure whether that was actually accurate. So. Um, I decided against it in the end. Um, but that sort of led me to think about someone that might be interested in studying history. Um, and then I I listened to an excellent uh, lecture from the Royal Armouries about a gift given to uh, a general in India during the 19th century, um, which consisted of a, a sword and a, and a revolver. And during this, the, uh, the, um, the lecturer mentioned about the the Sepoy revolt, which happened in 1857, I think it was, and how the the the, the carnage was so bad in Kanpur, even the revolt, the the, the Sepoys who were rebelling, you know, these these soldiers who'd been too long under the yoke, they couldn't actually handle it. They lost, you know, they were unmanned by what they were having to do because they were killing so many women and children, and the local butchers were called in, and so it was this idea that immediately i was like holy shit that's the story there it is it's right there yeah uh, and i i like this idea that um the the set because a lot of this is based on history it's not particularly accurate like i mean if anyone's really up on uh 19th century indian history then i then please feel free to correct me but it was it was my honest attempt at it um but uh yeah i find it interesting how the well, well the choice of historical fiction i found really interesting as well um, and that's one of the great things about short fiction. It, you know, in one collection, you can move about to different historical periods, even if it's just the 70s, you know, or, or the Middle Ages. But also that um, I knew about the cartridges and you kind of led us up to that. I wonder if he knows about that. You know, so I got really involved because of, of a, a, a bit of information that I knew that mm. was but that was the story was leading towards, and I found that really interesting. I'd not really thought about the way that um, that that kind of um, information can bring the reader in and kind of, in a sense, empower them. You know, um, yeah, it was yeah, it was fascinating. It, it's it can be quite affirming, can't it? When when you know something, and then the story gradually gets to that being part of the part of the main thrust. Yeah, I've, I've definitely experienced that before with with historical fiction. I think yeah. Yeah, right. it's that kind of gratification, and I, and I guess it also reminds us how how much we've learned through fiction. It's not all from history books. Um, right. You know, we a, a lot of stuff I guess that we know about history is through fictional form that's reworked it. 
I uh, I was a fairly um, lazy student uh, for the most of the time uh, that I was in full-time education, but I absolutely love anecdotal learning. It's my favorite way to learn anything. Um, you know, if, if you tell me a cool story about, about something that happened in 16th century Spain, I will remember it until I die. But if I have to just remember rope dates or whatever, I can't do it. It's, I'm just, I, like, I don't have the attention to give to it at all. Um, but I mean, it, it goes back to the roots of education, doesn't it? I mean, when, when the storyteller was an authoritative, they would be the repository of knowledge. Um, yes. So it's no accident that the, the story is a, is a vector for memory mm. and, yeah. and for cultural memory. I really enjoy engaging with the, those, those sort of concepts through uh, whilst writing fiction about something that interests me. Um, mm. So I, I had a lot of fun writing this. Um, in particular, I thought that I had to do something with the this idea that the revolt started because of um, fats taken from dead cow and um, cows and pigs and they called butchers in to mm. finish off the job there was something weird, there was something strange there and, and in all honesty i'm actually not sure i've nailed this story i you know i i've reworked it a couple of times and um i'm not sure that actually find that sort of that oddness comes through that he's a butcher and the reason it started was because of dead animals um it's definitely there hmm the other big theme is literacy, isn't it? And and the sense of um, of mobility it offers to the imagination. So he's drawn to that bookseller and to that and to those uh, manuscripts. I mean, most people have only been in our country literate since the eighteen eighties. Mm. Most of human history, you know, it's been a, a a mystery to most people how those squiggles could become something like experience through through stories. Mm. I thought that was a really powerful moment. That sense of the book as a um, as a kind of opening out of of experience. Um, so, so to, to sit there in the sort of physical reality that you conjure in the story, but your character somewhere else through the book that he's reading, and I, I really like that layering. Mm. Oh, thank you. That's uh, that's very kind. Well, there, as you say, there were three three fairly sort of sad stories. Um, but I really like how we all went in different directions. It gets me every time, every episode that we do. I love it. This mm. uh, see, seeing the way people interpret the prompts and, and what we get out of it. So, um, yeah, nice, nice work all. I think we can pat ourselves on the back there. Pat, uh, pat. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, that's only half of what we do. We also want to have a little chat with you about who, who you are, Graham, and, and sort of get to know you and get to know more about you. Um, so if you're up for it, we've got some questions for you. Yeah, I'm ready. What are you reading at the moment, Graham? Oh, um, I'm reading a book by um, a native North American poet called Simon Ortiz. Um, it's called Woven Stone, and it's got a fantastic introduction, a, a, a really nuanced account of his, of his growing up um, and in the kind of Pueblo and then sort of understanding that America and that they were this small kind of um, island of, of a different culture within this dominant culture. It, it's a fascinating essay, so I've been kind of exploring those poems. Um, and I've been rereading a book, uh, a novel called Dust, and that's by Yvonne Adiambo O'War. Um, it's set in Kenya, and it's the most extraordinary novel. Um, it's just packed with surprises, with uh, 
poetic language with juxtapositions, but it's also a historical novel which deals with the Mau Mau uprising there. So I've got a big interest in Africa, so that book's kind of rewarding in uh, in many ways. And I've also got um, Tony Morrison's book of essays, Mouthful of Blood on the Go, and I, I'm dipping into that. Um, um, when I when I feel the need to be sane, I'll go and read another one of her essays and <laughs> touch base for that. Hmm. So I, I tend to have different things on the go, um, and it, it might be poetry, it might be a you know a short fiction or a novel, or very often actually it's it's um, a, a book which is nothing to do with with literature, with fiction, you know. Um, so it might be historic history or. Uh, some technological interest I've got. I like neuroscience. Um, and I think that, um, and I know the theory if you want to read short fiction is you should go and read short fiction. Um, I've always been slightly skeptical about the causal link between reading and then being enabled as a writer. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. That, in fact, I was just about to ask you a question about that because, because I, I, I feel quite strongly that you need to go out and get experiences to be able to write anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've spent most of my life teaching creative writing, and, and it, mm. I have to say that when, so when, when I worked at Lancaster University, and the, and the creative writing program there started with an MA about the same time that East Anglia started, and it was a really good place to start it because you get mature students who've got a lot of experience and a lot of expertise, um, and then we gradually sort of developed undergraduate programs. But it does present this paradox. You know, it's very difficult at the age of 18 to really draw upon your own experience. Um, I would say especially if that experience has been traumatic in, in some way. Kids at that age don't have that confidence. So I think, you know, despite having been involved in the creative writing movement for so long, I, I, I became kind of really uneasy about, about what we were really asking there. And are we really asking a, a mimetic thing, you know, like read some short fiction and write some short fiction? Um, and that, that's always bothered me as a model of composition. And you want to say to people, run away, you know, yeah. do, go, get out of here, get out of the university. I ran away from the university. Um, and I guess the other thing is, don't just read what you think you should be reading. Um, I used to read the, the Haynes Motorcycle Manual um, in bed. I did have a motorcycle, but I was fascinated by what a moral argument it is. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way to dismantle motorcycle and they let you know that so i think any text is really rich in um in, in kind of material and i guess reading about stuff is is akin to experiencing it directly yourself as well so i always encourage my yeah. students to read as widely as possible and not to get you know into, into this kind of groove where they think they have to read what it is they want to write i mean it helps sure but um i'm not sure what the mechanism is um, for the for the magical transference, you know, from from one uh, author to another. You you mentioned it being um, mimetic. Um, the so on my on my undergraduate course. Um, so I so I did I did some modules of creative writing on my undergraduate course. So I know exactly what you're talking about with this idea that you know eighteen year olds kind of don't have anything to write about yet because either they're not far enough away from their trauma to have dealt with it yet, or they haven't really lived life necessarily like that's not that's a bit of a generalization but but necessarily um and one of the things was to actually take 
one of one of the one of the um, bits of like coursework was to take a piece of writing that you admired, and like copy the beats of it, um, and just change stuff like the 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 nouns and the verbs. Oh, and it was it was the worst. It like I I really hated it. I. I, you know, I did it in like five minutes because you can just phone something like that in, and it it didn't mean anything to me at all. Um, right. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the next question, which is uh, dastardly. Uh, what's the best book you've ever read? Blimey. I I, I suppose I'm very. Well, it's it's, it's an unanswerable question, of course, but there are <laughs> certain books that. that um, that kind of stay with you or certain methods. One of the books that I really love is Working by Studs Terkel. So he's this Jewish uh, American uh, journalist, really. And uh, he decided he would interview people about their work. And almost the first sentence in the book, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but he says, because this is a book about work, it's a book about violence. And it's a fabulous essay. And what he wanted to do is to try and find out what kind of meaning people felt in work. And it's a, a bit of a cliche to say that not many writers write about work. You know, not many creative writers really write about work. Um, but what he does, he, he travels America with a, a large reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder and interviews people the interviews prostitutes policemen firemen firewomen teachers nurses on and on and on and he, he just um edits the work but doesn't interfere with it as it were um and it's the same method that another writer i admire very much svetlana alexayevich uses and she's created these extraordinary books which are just edited testimony so i'm kind of really interested in the idea of, um, of ethnography in people's own accounts of their experience and uh i mean svetlana edits them into these epic poems really where the same voice um but those books have made a really big impression on, on me um be because they're just incredibly rich in 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 personal experience uh, and as, as a writer kind of reading that I, again it's that thing of you know maybe don't read what you want to write but read stuff that feeds that um sense of connection really um so so those are two writers who use this method just simple interview um and let people speak for themselves um that have really kind of influenced men impressed me i think we're definitely seeing this uh, this theme of um like things that are drenched in in human experience being very important to the way that you approach your work and your outlook on on stuff like teaching and all the rest of it which is i think really really admirable really really awesome I suppose what I mean the re the reaction to being asked to write creatively in the academy for those eighteen year old kids is they write fantasy. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, after one marking session a couple of years ago, I told my head of department I felt like Gandalf. You know, I like <laughs> so much of the stuff, and it's it's it, I think it's partly because you know there's there's a sense of that's what's going on at the moment, and it's it's perhaps a commercial possibility. But also it's because I think there is this difficulty in translating what's happened to them. Um, and yet for me, the whole creative writing movement, really giving people permission to value their own experience. 
uh, because of you know literature had been dominated by canonical writers and and you know who who were these great writers and one of the sort of um aspects of the creative writing movement as it got going in the 70s was to get people to write about their own lives and i suppose that you know that goes back to studs turkle and Alexievich, really that idea that your own your own life really matters it's not you know history is not just written by those um individuals that we remember you know like churchill czar nicholas um it's that idea of the richness of of the of the individual experience i think that draws me I really, I really enjoyed that answer. Thank you. You mentioned that you're uh, that you have a real interest in Africa, um, and I, I sort of know from from looking through um, some of some of what you've done uh, in your in your career that you've have you, you've spent quite a lot of time in is it South Africa that you spent time in? Yeah, it, it's kind of been a progressive um, relationship, really. So in two th- in, on the first of January two thousand, I walked away from the job I was doing. And went back to freelancing um, and then I was asked um, by the British Council if I'd go out to take up a writing residency in Uganda and uh, I, I went there in 2001 um, and it was just extraordinary experience it was the middle of a, a general election so um, General Museveni was going for another term of office um, he's had another four since then uh, so you probably saw the, re- the controversy about the Ugandan elections recently. So he's one of those African leaders that's held on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but it was an amazing experience. So I think at the time that I drove from Entebbe to Kampala in the taxi when I arrived, it's about 20 miles, uh, I had been changed by just being there. It was, it was extraordinary. Um, so I set up a project there working with um, kind of young Ugandan writers and what happened in Uganda was that the older generation of writers had pretty much disappeared for various reasons. One was exile um, because of Idi Amin. He drove them out of the country. And one was a huge HIV AIDS epidemic that, that killed, it's estimated, about six million Ugandans. Um, so that the older generation had kind of been lost or thinned out. And the young writers that I met knew far more about um, Wordsworth than they did about Oket Bitek, who's a Ugandan writer. There was um, there were no Ugandan writers on the on the school curriculum, um, so they were desperate for contact really outside of Uganda. And um, I set up a distance learning project linking young writers in Africa to mentors here in the UK, and it was a kind of project about cultural exchange as well. And we we had a whole range of writers here from very different cultural backgrounds. And the idea was, you know, the UK wasn't just populated by, you know, people with BBC accents, but actually it was this new, diverse, multicultural society. Um, so they were kind of, we were working with these young writers and, and mentoring them. Um, but also the, our tutors visited uh, the countries that they were tutoring in. And there was a whole kind of period of, 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 of real, really kind of sharing and, and working together. Um, and then we moved into radio um, work in, in Uganda and then in, in Nigeria. So we worked in nine countries. Um, South nine. Africa was one wow. of them. Um, and it was this big conversation really happening between Africa and writers in the UK over the, over about an eight-year period. And uh, we commissioned work. We paid the writers to be 
in a in a public online publication. We paid them for radio commissions as well. Um, yeah, and it was a for me it was a really important period in in, in my life. Um, and I still have um, connections there in South Africa. I've got a visiting chair at the University of the Western Cape, um, it, where I spent part of I have spent part of each year for the past you know few years. Mm. Uh, tricky at the moment because of. Tricky. Uh, tricky at the moment yeah <laughs> oh well that sounds phenomenal that sounds incredibly um worthwhile and and really i can see what, what when you say that it's been a really important thing for you i can really see why that's very cool very cool i think the the, the thing that strikes you straight away is that these, these young writers are writing about social change um and they really believe that writing can change social social circumstances um and that is a very inspiring kind of fervor to work with you know um that sense that writing really matters um so i kind of fell in love with that really and uh, uh carried on working there um well we've got some more questions for you um so let's uh let's carry on um so we we in the early part of this um part of this season we we spoke to people about uh you know, we asked the inverse of what's the best book you've ever read um, and we just asked, what's the worst we've ever read? And that's equally as hard a question and also possibly quite rude uh, for people, for sort of authors to talk about other authors in that way. Um, so we sort of drilled down what we were actually trying to ask with that question, um, which is that, um, and we've, we've come up with the idea that, can you think of a book that didn't actually work for you at all? And, and why didn't it work for you? Like what, you know, what wasn't working either stylistically or thematically for you that just cause you to put it down yeah it's it wasn't a creative writing book actually um it was a book by jordan peterson so his famous book on the 12 kind of rules for living i think that's the title and it's a very beguiling book at first you get you start to read it and it's full of sage advice and stories and it joins together all this kind of these, these mythological frameworks um, from, from Disneyland to ancient Greece, you know. But the more I read it, the more I felt there was another agenda pressing underneath, and that was a pretty right-wing um, mm. agenda as well. Um, and that book really bothered me um, because it seems a lot of people have kind of read it and taken it as, a, as an almost as a biblical text, you know, and yet to me it just seemed deeply suspect. Um, it seemed that he, he wasn't really in touch with what he was kind of kind of inferring the whole time um and it's become a kind of cult but i i was not a cult member like let's say i, I kind of parted company with it i did finish <laughs> it actually um but i felt quite hostile towards it by the end yeah the i i'm, I'm sort of vaguely aware of of this guy through um through a pod you know like uh, he's i think he's guested on quite a lot of podcasts that i that i do listen to um and yeah there is something possibly that does um, turn one off a little bit when it's really when something's really trying to be uh, very preachy and sort of um, I guess didactic in a way, um, or and if it's even worse if that's insidious. So I can definitely see see that one. Um, anyway, let's let's swerve it back towards the positive. Um, and uh, Nick's got Nick's got quite a fun question for you. Yeah, let's have one that we like. I mean, the answer might now be Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you know, is he a real person? Does he exist? <laughs> Let's let's discuss that in depth as I ask you, who's your favourite literary character? Yeah, interesting. Um, 
Well, I guess that changes. You know, I'm very fickle, so every so often I'll, I'll get really interested in in one. But at the moment, uh, it's Eva Kachadorian in. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin, and I just think she's an amazing uh, construct, really. So she tells the story through these letters to Franklin, her husband, who's just a bit dumb. You know, he doesn't really get what's going on with Kevin. Um, and he's a lovable guy. It's a really great satire on America, I think, actually, that, that book, and a great insight into different aspects of American culture. And she's kind of too smart for her own good. She, she understands too much. Um, and the series of letters struck me as a really clunky kind of literary device, you know. I thought, I'm never going to finish this book. It's massive, and it's 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 got this kind of artifice about it. And yet I was really drawn in, you know, by her kind of personality and by our own sort of self-cynicism um a, a, a smart character from a very smart writer i thought hmm. i think it's always nice when a literary tool like that is deployed and you i'm the same with a lot of things i think oh i don't i don't want to be taken out of the book to read something in a completely different style and then someone nails it and you think oh that's what that's meant to feel like okay and then it it becomes a kind of new transformative reading experience. Yeah, because she she plays with the idea that we think Franklin's alive somewhere and, he, and he's not. Uh, he's already succumbed to his own naivety, really, and the, and and that's the sort of power of that. Um, kind of spoiled if you've seen the film beforehand, but you know, um, it is a tour de force, I think, and she is this presence that you really believe in, you know. Well, uh, bouncing on from that, um, I've got my my favourite question to ask um, authors, especially ones that have uh, done quite so much as, as you have, which is what what is your writing process when you actually come down to write either a, a short story or longer form? How do you how do you do it? How do you achieve it? Yeah, well, I guess my issue is that I oscillate between poems and stories, mm. and it's weird. I mean, they're often triggered by just a moment of actual experience. Or it could just as easily be a, a word I hear, actually. Um, sometimes it's something that happens that connects with a memory. So when you said to me, Red Shoes, I was mm. back on that beach in Suffolk. Um, and I always knew there was a story there, but I'd, I'd never got to it, you know. So I think sometimes when you're in a moment of actual experience, there's an almost an aura about it that says to you that it's going to be reworked as a literary um event and sometimes that is a poem for me and sometimes it's a story i'm not quite sure why that decision is taken but it's taken very early on in the process so i would probably never start writing a poem and think this is a, a story actually or vice versa mm -hmm. um so the po the poems are one thing they feel very different to me from the stories and i think the process with the story um, I, I've just given a masterclass for Arvin and I thought, oh, well, while, while I'm working up to the, you know, how to write a short story, I'm going to work on a couple. And I did. So one of them was, was the story that I, I worked on for you. And the other one was a much longer story. And I realised that I didn't have a method. And of course, I realised that I don't know how to write a story. Um, <laughs> I only know how to write a story when I'm doing it. Mm. And I think also that's one of the really fascinating things about that relationship with creative writing teaching especially with mature students where you know you're not a, a kind of expert reaching down to them you're actually working with them and every student 
invents a new problem, just as every story you try to write invents a new set of problems you have to work with. So for me, that first draft is like, you know, I, I never know where the story is going. I don't know what the ending is. I don't know much about the characters um, and what's going on. But when I've got that draft, that first draft, which has a kind of shape to it, um, I kind of live in the story. So when I'm walking about, I'm, I'm thinking about the people in the story, what, what's going on. Um, and, I, and I'm in there until I kind of sign off on it. So I, I don't know how that relates to other people's process. Um, so when I was taking questions in the, in the masterclass, a guy said, you know, how do you plan your story? I thought, oh, God, I'm going to get found out here um, <laughs> because I, I don't plan them. And I said to him, you know, probably if you planned it, you would never write it because it's the it's the writing is the finding out. Yeah. You know, the fiction is this kind of truth you're trying to get to or or it's the it's the dynamic of the ambiguities in the story that really draws me i think um but but i think you have to live in it once you've got that first part you know that shape and then there's working on the language and i think as a poet um there's something about that process um you can spend a morning on a semicolon in a, in a poem and you <laughs> you're sculpting that form it's you know poems a visual object as well as a kind of narrative form if you like um, I think poetry teaches you about imagery and that you can narrate through images as well as through storytelling. Um, and that's, I think, a pretty strong aspect of my working method. So, again, you know, when you gave me three prompts and two were abstract and one was a could translate into a visual image, I went for that straight away at a concrete yeah. quality. And, of course, it had some highly kind of symbolic qualities to it that, that I thought I could work with. I still didn't know what I was going to write about until I got onto that beach though. Um, mm. And then it kind of you know began to come together. So I, I wouldn't say I had a, a completely consistent method, but there are some things that I know are, that, that I, I kind of go to. Um, and there are stages in the process that I go through that are, you know, the first draft is, is painful. Um, but once I'm there, there's something really exciting about not just making connections, but finding the connections that you subconsciously made in the story. So, so I, I think I'm, you know, if there was an arc from stories that are like um, poems that, that have epiphanies um, and stories that are tightly plotted, um, then I'm definitely on the poetic end of that process. Um, so what interests me is paradox, ambiguity, the, the visual texture, the imagery of the, of the, of the story um, and what I can do with that it's, it's rarely um, what I'd call the sprung action of a plot that, that draws me sprung action of a plot yeah that's a nice way of putting that I uh, yeah I, I, I think that's um, the, way, the way you were speaking about writing and stuff there really really did speak to me a, a lot um, we've, we've had a lot of people on this season and some of them have been more sort of like you know plotters who are used to writing big longer longer form pieces um, but very few of them have written poetry. And so it's really interesting to hear you bring your, you know, talk about how your poetry writing has influenced your short story writing in this context, for sure. Yeah. Um, you've, uh, you have won some fairly awesome prizes for your short fiction. Um, were they sort of key moments for you or did they sort of glance off you a little bit because you were involved in other projects? Um, yeah, I suppose I've, I've got a particular attitude to 
literary prizes, um, in a sense, that I mean, they've become very important. They've become, you know, crucial for for many writers. That's been the sort of moment where they they broke through, and I guess they, you know, they they're set up in different ways. I remember winning some prizes in the Cheltenham um, Festival competition when I was just starting out, and it, I thought that was great because that, you know, the the entry money all went into the festival, and it was a really nice model. I thought of the competition being being about you know performance and, and bringing writers to the public. I sub, I think they've become much more significant since then and i don't know you know when prizes get really big there's a there's a there's a lot of stuff going on um that you have to, politically you mean yeah i think i think they can be i mean they become a to some extent a hostage to the zeitgeist you know mm-hmm. um, but, but you'd have to be nuts to think that you know when that your story was the best story um and when I won the Edge Hill Prize, uh, that was important because it was for a collection. Uh, except I couldn't, co- you know, I couldn't collect the prize as it was. I was in Uganda at the time, um, and I, I kind of wrote a piece. Uh, my partner went down, and um, my editor re- read it out. And I was really trying to talk myself out of the prize in a way because <laughs> I felt the you know, the people that didn't win the prize. I mean, I, I couldn't honestly believe that my work was somehow better than theirs. What what would that mean? Um, you know, and, and you you're very aware that a particular panel of judges will make particular decisions. So the year after, I got to judge the Edge Hill Prize and was part of, of that process. So I guess I'm uh, I'm grateful for the prize that I have won. Um, it's great to win them. Um, the money always helps, but part of you has got to be really sceptical as well. And and I do I think on the whole see see them as a good thing. But they can become very dominant uh, and can seem the, the only way for, for writers to move on. And I think a lot of people that are starting out, you know, are really bothered by that. Uh, you know, why am I not winning lo- loads of prizes? Mm. Um, so, so that idea that, they're, that they are, by definition, qualitatively better than anything else, I think is, it, it is frankly, quite nuts. Oh, fascinating. So we've, we've learned that you, you get your stories and your poems onto paper by getting in getting elbow deep and getting it done i want to try and apply that to another medium now so if you could take a story that already uh, a story that already exists uh, and transfer it to another medium and that can be anything it can be film it could be into a painting whatever you feel like what story would you use to what medium would you adapt it and why one of my own stories. It doesn't have to be, but it can be if you like. Well, I'll, I, I will choose one of my own stories. Um, and, and it would probably be the story of Terroir in my second collection. And that's because I conceived it as a film when I was writing it. And that one is actually plotted um, quite, quite tightly. And I, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is the extent to which cinema has influenced um, fiction writing, uh, I think it's also influenced poetry. Well, that sense of of being educated visually um, in, through through film, and the way that film is edited, which is very radical, um, I, I think has been a massive influence on on prose writers. So that whole whole story is a series of um, of cuts, really, from from a film. It starts off with a guy riding his motorcycle um, into a vineyard in Bordeaux, and 
there are scenes in it where that cut to the bike and, and cut back to the ripening grapes. There's a scene with fornicating slugs. Um, <laughs> there's a bad, there's a kind of bad character in there, um, and there's a beautiful woman who's unconsciously perhaps seducing this guy who's who's been brought into uh, to look after the the harvest. So, so I guess it wouldn't be the only story that. That I've written that is, has got a really very strong sense of the of the cinematic about it. It's interesting that you actually conceived it as a as a film first. I wouldn't say that was. Uh, I don't. I don't know how conscious that is. Um, okay. Right. Sorry. But I was. I, but I was watching the action that I was writing. Um, it's also quite a forward moving piece in terms of its kind of temporal structure so we we spend more time in that story in the in the kind of present moment than in many of my stories which um typically would be an aspect of the character's consciousness and would would track back into the past so so quite often not much happens in the present moment of my stories but a lot happens in the in the kind of remembered and, and reacted reenacted past Hmm. Um, but that story is more kind of dynamic and forward moving in in the terms of its action. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of why I was drawn back to thinking about it in that way. See, you mentioned these, I'm probably ste stepping on Nico's toes here. It is his, one of his favourite questions here, but I always like to hear it. The, it sounds like you had like really strong archetypes when you're writing this. Maybe archetypes is a bit simplistic, but, you know, the, the attractive woman, the, you know, the bad guy from the internet managed the harvest, this kind of thing. Have you got any possible like uh, like fantasy castings that might be quite amusing of those of those roles in that story? No, I'm not. I, I, I don't think I am that drawn by archetypes. That's a good question. I've got to go and lie down and think about that. <laughs> um, I, I did write one story where I thought Helena Bonham Carter was made for the part, you know, but she's not stepped forward so far. <laughs> Yes. Uh, you so out. I don't really think in terms of, um, I, I, well, I don't think I think in terms of archetypes, but of course, characters do have kind of archetypal properties, don't they, you know? I think uh, it's almost impossible to escape, even if you don't write an archetype. We're so, as consumers, desperate to slot people into them mm. that you will subconsciously tweak a character to make them fit the archetype. Or deliberately buck against it, perhaps. Like even that yeah, possibly, is still yeah. interacting with and engaging with the concept of an archetype. I think. Yeah, I mean that's that story has a, a really bad bastard in it, you know, and that's unusual for me. Mm. Um, so what in, in in the same book, there's a story about a, a torturer in uh, in a South American country, and in many ways, it's, it's a very sympathetic character. Um, and I wanted to work with the idea that he does terrible things. You know, he actually never hurts anybody physically. Um, but I wanted him to have the preoccupations of, of any, you know, guy. His mother's just been taken into a home. He's worried about her. Um, his wife's got to go for some gynecological tests. One of his kids is getting bullied in school. Uh, meanwhile, he's he's torturing these um, gorillas that have been captured, and he, and he does it in a in a in a psychological way. So it's unusual for me to have like like a character who is basically pretty bad all the way through mm. um but of course that's kind of scaling that i mean the the torturer is more monstrous for being ordinary um yeah at the end of that story um 
and and the bad bastard is just slightly perhaps an exaggerated figure. I might be secretly ashamed of having done that actually. Oh no. A story a story with an actual plot and, and characters that you know you can identify <laughs> with. It's okay, we don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> Only by accident. Uh, <laughs> um all right. Well, this is this is quite an interesting question that I, I enjoy asking people, which is that uh, when was the last time that you cried whilst reading um, in this particular instance, like fiction? Did you do you do you have you ever cried whilst reading fiction? You know, I can't remember the last time. Um, I am a bit of a crier, actually. Um, in, you know, in, in workshops, sometimes if I talk about something that I'm feel very strongly about um I've, I, I've got to hold it back um so i am prone to moments of kind of choking up when i'm actually interacting with human beings but you know when i interact with a text um there's something a bit colder going on and the and the cold thing is oh, how did they do that how did lionel shriver do that you know make those letters become something else so i think i read for technique um, and that does put it sounds terrible doesn't it it sounds like I'm a psychopath you know that I can't ever really get into a story but a big part of the pleasure of reading for me now is to under, you know is to understand what that writer is doing and how they how they're doing what they do um, so I am whilst in some circumstances I might be prone to tearfulness in others I'm completely brutal and cold-blooded and would um, perhaps not turn a hair you know do you think that um, your your capacity for evoking emotion like that has been an aid to you when you write because you can sort of draw up emotion at speed and it means you can channel what you need to get onto the page or does it not really work for you like that? Yeah, I mean, it, I, I suppose that I have a particular view of what writing's kind of there for um and i've reduced it to one really simple question um and i think it's it's perhaps what drives all writers but i don't know i'm not all writers i'm only one of them but the certainly the question that haunts me is what is it like to be somebody else mm. um you know what is it what is it like to be that kid in the uh, indian mutiny mm. um, What's it like to that woman in the in the states? And that's the that's a question both of you are pursuing, I think. And and how do you bring about that identification for the reader? Um, is it through inhabiting the voice of the character? Is it through the memory of the of the character? Is it through the you know kind of historical details that are so strong that that they kind of buy into the story um, in the way that I did with the cartridges? So I, I guess there's a more complicated answer as well about what writing is for and that's that it's there to enable us to understand um, and to understand hu human beings so when i was um an academic i've just retired from my uh, full-time academic job but creative writing in the academy is a form of research uh, but it's practice based it's research that's about making something um and for me that research had to be effective in other words it had to influence um the reader's emotions as well as their as well as their intellect and i, I can't think of anything worse of, of a kind of academic writer whose fiction is just you know uh about 
purely about abstract ideas. So I wanted the readers to feel something. Um, my son's a, a biochemist, he's an academic, and he doesn't spend too much time worrying about how people feel when they read mm. his papers, you know. No. But for mm -hmm. me, it was fundamental that if most creative writing departments are in English departments, you know, in English scholars read our work. And yet there's always been this funny sense of illegitimacy about creative writing itself in the academy. You know, what, you can do a PhD in creative writing? What's that about, you know? So there's still this incredulity sometimes, but I think it's totally legitimate that, that that creative writing can bring about new forms of understanding or we wouldn't study it or read it and part of that understanding is emotional it's not purely you know a set of ideas that click into place it's something that's very hard to describe afterwards after the reading experience um, it should be hard i think to put that into words um, whereas reading a science paper might create a, you know a, a real moment of connection with actual knowledge i don't think fiction and poems work like that, but I do think they're absolutely crucial to human culture. You know, that idea of a storyteller as being that central figure who we go to um, and who creates this kind of, kind of framework in which we, without having the actual experience, experience what it's like to be, you know, somebody else. Um, and, and I'm really interested in those kind of issues which do involve emotional responses as much as acts of, you know, intellectual recognition, perhaps. Isn't it strange that that has become almost well, seen as almost frivolous, the role of the storyteller, the the songwriter? And, you know, as it's lost some of that cultural significance, like you say, people saying, oh, you can get a PhD in creative writing, but why shouldn't you? Writing and storytelling are, you know, they're the, the keystone that the bridge of our humanity is built with. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was far too deep for me. I'm gonna get stupid <laughs> again. Let's <laughs> let's let's reset the clock, everyone. As I ask this question, the question, all you <laughs> regular listeners out there, Graham, do me a kindness. Can you tell me one really uninteresting fact about yourself? Yeah, I've always managed to look like somebody else. I never looked like myself. It's weird. It's, so when I was younger, it was, it was John McEnroe. Now, people used to call me McEnroe because I looked like John. And then it was uh, Charlie in Casualty. And, uh, <laughs> and um, the other day I was watching John Sim, and I don't so much look like him, but felt like him. You know, he's got a bit old. <laughs> so I've always had this odd, odd sense that I'm not really myself, but other people often greet me in the street you know i know i know it isn't me they're waving out they think i'm the other guy you know so you so actually get it's kind of boring but it's it is odd at times you get full-on mistaken for people in the street yeah wow yeah. crikey people, in other words people i don't know who seem to know me hey love you know you know casually what used to be on the telly 20 <laughs> years ago do you look like charlie <laughs> it got it got serious i couldn't look at him <laughs> oh no oh no <laughs> Oh no! We've Do you think that actors somewhere and some lover of books is running up? You're not Graham Moore, are you? <laughs> it's funny because I was I was once at a book fair when I ran a small press, and uh, a very old auntie of my wife, a great auntie, I think, came up to me and said, "Are you Graham Mort?" And I said, "No, <laughs> <laughs> no idea who she was." Um, mad as a hatter, but um, yeah. So I guess I've got an instinct as well to. Uh, <laughs> 
deny myself. I, I think it pays sometimes to avoid interrogative ants. So absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They've got a way, haven't they? They certainly do. Meticulous. <laughs> she persisted and got the truth out of me anyway. So. See, that's how they do it. I feel like is that some... where you got the inspiration for the horrible psychological torturer for? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we've stumbled upon a, 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 an identity issue here. I know, you shouldn't have asked me now. <laughs> now I'm very uneasy, I'm squirming. Gonna, after, after this, you're yeah, going to be thinking to yourself about archetypes and who am I? Oh, Do I list this episode as featuring Charlie from Casualty or is that me? <laughs> no, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's another issue, though, about, about you do dissolve your own identity, don't you, in fiction? I mean, that's, hmm. that's part of the process, really. Yeah, um, you, yeah, you've, you've kind of got to leave it in, leave it at the door, really. But at the same time, like um, uh, authors and writers are lauded for their ability to have a style that's their own. Um, you know, there's that there's that issue about you know difficult one about voice, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, voice. What that cool. means, and I remember Don Patterson, the poet, saying, "You know, that's nonsense, really. I mean, we're all ventriloquists." The whole point of, of writing is to have different voices. So, you know, the authoritative new voice or the you know the voice of the generation always makes me a bit uneasy. Um, I think the ability to sh shed a sense of self is, is important. But there are, as, as you were saying, there are stylistic traits that are evidenced that, I mean, they're hard to shake off. Um, Very. I, mean, I, I, th I think you, you, you're conscious that you can always write the kind of story that you write. Or the kind of poem that you write by default, and, you, and you're you're trying to get beyond that as well. I think, um, you know, and to, and to be different you know, in, in some way. Yeah, I think I can get that. I mean, we 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 spoke about um, a little bit earlier in the season. We spoke about um, like someone like Hunter S. Thompson. Like it's it's very difficult to separate the their perceived identity from their story because it's told in like a Gonzo way, obviously. Yeah. But then you you've also got people like. Um, I mean, Hemingway is one of the people that are often sort of brought up as somebody that's got a very obvious style and voice or whatever. Um, and my uh, my partner is um, is a bit of a linguist and does a lot of does some translation. And apparently, Hemingway is very difficult to translate into, in particular, Spanish, for that reason. Right. Interesting. Um, so he, you know, it, it actually goes past even the boundaries of normal language, whatever he was putting into the way that he constructed, mm. even on the granular level, his work. Um, definitely something to think about, for sure. Uh, but let's, um, let's, uh, let's have a talk about um, your work. Do you have anything um, upcoming at all? Not right now, because I've just brought a book out. So my latest wow. book uh, came out from Salt about um, six weeks ago. Um, so I've got that just kind of out now. And... I'm doing that thing, that, that oscillation again. Um, I've got a book of poetry that is kind of almost there. I've been hanging on to it for some, I don't know why actually. Perhaps it's lockdown making me cling to things, but I've, I'm not, I'm not quite ready to let that go. But the, I, my writing sort tends to follow that pattern at the moment. It, it's, for the past few years, it's been a book of fiction then a book of poetry. And then the, the, another short story collection quietly kind of starting in the background until, until there's that sort of critical mass point where I think, yeah, this is a collection um, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep adding to it now, you know, and I'll put the poetry slightly into the background. 
Um, yeah, I don't fully understand that. <laughs> it's, it that, sounds like that business, really, but that's how it's become. It's it sounds almost like you're trying to keep it fresh for yourself, possibly. I, th I think there's a. I mean, I think the relationship between the two forms is is fruitful, and, mm -hmm. and it's probably good that I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not interrogate it too much then. Otherwise, we'll it cause more problems. To, you know, yeah. To... Uh, sure. Sorry. So your your book that came out six weeks ago. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and where people? Can get yeah, it? and and that that was a um, so three books of short fiction. The first one was called Touch, and and those stories were written over a period of twenty years, and I brought them together and basically reworked them. Um, and the second collection was Terroir. The, the, these are these these are both published by Saren, and that was a kind of shorter process. Um, but, but still a, f a fairly extended one. Um, but this last book is called Like Fardo uh, and Other Stories. Um, it, it was published by Salt in uh, February. And the process there was, was a bit different because I worked on um, the, the stories kind of simultaneously. It, it, was, it was a rather different process. It wasn't quite like finishing one and starting another. They seemed to be all on the go at the same time for quite a long period. Um, and... The title story is based on the Portuguese musical form. I was going to ask. Fado. Yeah. Which oh, has that... been called Portuguese blues. Um, so I've made a few trips to Lisbon and I got really interested in the in the music. And I don't speak Portuguese. And yet, um, I swear to God, I know what those songs about are about. Oh, wow. The atmosphere. The sense of loss. There's a, so this is this is expression in Portuguese, sodad, and it's this almost untranslatable sense of fate, nostalgia, inevitability, and nostalgia for the past. But also in it, the nostalgias and the sadness are almost enjoyable. Uh, they're a kind of expression of an essential part of life. So I got the I got the idea that this collection would be linked. In, in some way. So the, the first one was called Touch because of a sort of physical intimacy that ran through the stories. The second one was called Terroir because I got interested in that French notion of what makes French wine so unique. And of course, it's something untranslatable again to the French. It's a mixture of, of the soil, the climate, but also the history and the culture um, that have gone into the wine. So the French are very proud of this idea of terroir. And it struck me that people have the same kind of vintage, you know, that we, we're all product, products of our location um, mm. and, and culture. So I kind of transferred the idea of terroir into, into characters. And in this one, I guess, there's a um, quite, quite a strong musical theme that runs through the stories. It's not all about Fado, though two of the stories touch upon it. And in one, it's a kind of extraordinary and inexpressible um, form of human experience and in another it's the kind of music that whores sing uh, <laughs> so you know i'm, I'm interested in the, di the the different response to that to, to that music as well mm. um but there's a there's a, a long story in there which is all it's not really a novella length um it, it's about 15 16 000 words but that's um also got a musical um focus in that it, it it's about a a musician um and you know music and musical structures are a big part of his kind of experience S so there's a sort of atmospheric 
through the idea of the fado music um, and also stories that deal directly with with music. It, it, but it's fairly loose. I mean, I, I've never written a themed collection where all the stories link together. I think that would probably be a good move at the moment. It's quite fashionable to have that joined upness. But mm. what I like is the moving about, you know, different historical periods, different characters, different cultures. So there are stories in all my books set in very different locations. So in, in um, like Fado, there's a story set in Italy, um, narrated by uh, a Belgian guy. There's a story set in South Africa. There's a story set in Portugal. The stories set in Spain. So there's a, uh, and in France. So there's that idea of the, the locations and the cultural um, centers moving. And I'm interested in culture as a location as well. Um, and in history as a location. Mm. So they move about in kind of odd moments in history, you know, from the 1970s to absolutely contemporary. It sounds fascinating. Um, it's, yeah, it's a kind of, I like the sense of movement from story to story. Um, so if you were looking for, a, you know, a, a kind of consistent voice in there, you certainly wouldn't find that. <laughs> uh, but you would probably find stylistic. I think you're yes. preaching to the right crowd here. Yeah. We did like you, movement. Did you get the 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 like Fado thing straight away then? Because I it went completely over my head. I've got no yes, idea. Of I, was, musical. I was going to say it. Were you talking about the the Portuguese music? I used to be enamoured with a Portuguese lady, and <laughs> we. Oh, that's a weird way of saying that we dated for a couple of years. Very weird. Um, Very weird. Yeah, I I didn't know how to say it. I used to go out the Portuguese girl. There you go. That's uh, yeah, the Essex no. way of saying it. Um, but no, we. Uh, she was from Cascais. And when I visited, we went to Lisboa, to Lisbon, and we uh, we went into a little backstreet bar, and they they had that well they they performed Fado live, and you know I'm I'm out there with this beautiful woman, and I forgot she existed <laughs> because this emotionally intense, like completely incomprehensible, but overwhelming musical experience happened and you know the the strawberry daiquiri or whatever i had was turning into liquid all of the ice disappeared she could have said anything and i wouldn't have known because this music uh, you know as a musician seeing a type of music that i've never experienced before mm. it's it's change it changes you and you know uh, my my dad played me opera all the time when I was a kid, and it felt like this this micro opera hmm. that it had all of that power and passion of opera, but with the intensity of uh, more classical Mediterranean music rather than the operatic form. And it's just wild. I love the guitar textures as well. You've got the Portuguese oh, God, guitar, yeah. which is like a mandolin, and then you've got, usually got a Spanish guitar with a rather softer texture. But that five-finger plucking technique. Ah, so good. I'm definitely yeah. going to have to look up this. This uh, I'm going to be listening on Spotify to Fado music for the I'll rest of the I'll take you. As soon as the, the borders are down, we're going. <laughs> great music to listen to when you, you're cooking on a Friday night and drinking whiskey. It's, it's oh, like nice. nothing else. All right. Well, I'll, 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 tell my, I'll tell my partner that's what I'm doing on Friday night now because, uh, because Graham yeah. said so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, th I think for me the other link as well was it, it was disreputable music. And I'm very interested in the blues. Um, so I'm playing a little blues band and I've always been interested in um, 
blues is ironic music. Uh, you know, there aren't any. I think Jermaine Greer said it was the only misogynistic music she she could appreciate because actually <laughs> women always come out on top. And if, and Fado isn't ironic. It's it's overblown and kind of vulgar in a way. It wears its heart on its sleeve. It doesn't kind of hold back. Um, but but I really like that. But there's there's another connection as well, which is the connection with Africa. So that title story, um, the guy in the story wanders into the African quarter in Lisbon, um, and it was one of the last countries in in Europe to have a dictatorship. Um, so I you know I remember the um, Portuguese Revolution in the 1970s, the Carnation Revolution. Um, where, where the, the people went and, and put carnations in the muzzles of the soldiers' rifles. And it was almost a bloodless uh, coup. So my story is kind of, of course, not just about the music, but about the politics um, as well, and about those kind of folk memories. Um, but I like the idea of a music that was on the outside, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, with seedy stuff for bars and uh, sailors, prostitutes, all that, all that stuff is now yeah. mainstream. The best kind of people yeah absolutely oh wow oh that's what a, what a really cool find that sounds amazing and it really it sounds like a really engaging story um but uh we're keen for people to be able to uh find you on social media follow you that kind of thing so where can they where can they do that yeah you can find me on twitter or on facebook i've got an unusual surname so it'll, it'll pop up there is another graham Mort who plays football for kilmarnock or used to do I, so, I, I actually wasn't sure whether it would be bad form to ask if it was a pen name because it's such a cool name. Is it? Yeah. No, I'm astonished. Your, no, your it's, Discworld uh... is showing, Ben. Yeah, possibly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a um, a Terry Pratchett novel called Mort, um, which possibly is influencing me a little bit. But that it, it's uh, I think it's a cool name. So it is a strong name. Very well, well, I'm pleased to hear it. It's mm. it is fairly unusual. We're from um, I think we're from Lee in central Lancashire. Not not far from where I grew up, actually. Um, well, we don't, we've no idea where the name originates. My father confided in me that he thought we were descended from Flemish weavers, but he said no more. So, <laughs> <laughs> very mysterious thing for him to say, you know. We never, we never got any closer to that one. <laughs> just... Oh wow, that's. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a closer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think being the operative word, yeah. <laughs> then, then, like Flemish weavers, we shall descend into the abyss for one more week. Ben. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Graham. It's been really, really illuminating talking to you and really engaging to hear about your work and listen to thank your you. story, which was fantastic. So, thank you. Yeah, it's been great fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on your chosen service so that you don't miss out on future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, where you can talk to us directly and even suggest prompts for upcoming stories. If you're not a tweeter, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Just search for The Tiny Bookcase. Now, if you want to support the podcast, and we'd really appreciate it if you did, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the tiny bookcase. And then you can be just as special as these story seekers. Do we thank them? I think so. Well, then it's a huge thank you to the legendary Matthew McLaren and the absolutely epic Scott Byrne for their support. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
<laughs> make it slimy. <laughs> make it slimy, Nick.